Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sometimes needing new tires can catch us by surprise. That's why tire power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tirepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, it is a great pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who was a fixture with the Swans before they were actually the Swans, the Sydney Swans. He started his career at South Melbourne, made the Swans team of the century. His name is Tony Maud and he's in the studio with me. Tony, lovely to see you. Peter, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to having this chat. Unfortunately... It's been a while since I saw you, and unfortunately, the circumstances of the last time I saw you weren't that good. No, they weren't. Uh, your brother, Brian, who was a good friend of mine and uh, certainly a, a good friend of the Swans, he passed away 11 years ago, which and then time has gone quick, and uh, but that, uh, that's the last time we uh, actually caught up. You were very kind because um, Brian was a mad South Melbourne supporter, as most of my family, South Melbourne stroke Sydney Swans. So you gave us some Swans ties to wear at the funeral. So that was a very kind thing you did. Absolutely. I knew that uh, Brian would be honoured. And and I think that he'd be especially chuffed to see you, a Collingwood person, wearing a Swans tie at his last day. Now, that was the only time I was ever going to do that. But uh, certainly on that day, there were no problems with it. Um, My brother passed away from pancreatic cancer. They say that there are no good cancers, but that's certainly one of the bad ones. Absolutely. I've had another friend's wife recently uh, passed away and pancreatic cancer. I'm not sure where they're at with regard to getting more research to finding a, a faster cure for it, but it seems uh, it seems a battle. The one thing that my brother did get to do was to see that premiership that he wanted, and that was such a big moment in the lives of so many people that you know, obviously, and for yourself as well, when that drought was finally broken and when Rusey was able to hold up the cup and say, here it is. It was an amazing time, and... You know, I'd just come back to the club in late 2003 after a 13-year break. And I remember when when we moved to Sydney in 1982, that uh, process and the rationale that I had was that I wanted to – I was I was supportive of it. We were unfinancial at South Melbourne. And as a, a group of players, we were very good friends. And I felt that – I wanted to experience success with this group of people. It didn't happen in, in that time of, of my playing time. And then we suddenly, we went 
um, downhill for a while, but then suddenly out of nowhere, in 1996, we play in the grand final. We lose it, and none of us are ever sure when that moment's ever going to come in our lifetime. And you talk to players, Tony, about that, and they think that one grand final will beget another one and another one, but it often doesn't happen that way. You, It's a seize-the-moment opportunity because you never know when you're going to be back there again. Well, Michael O'Loughlin says you know, he was a young boy in the 1996 grand final, and he, after losing that, he was really looking forward to getting a chance the following year. Yeah. And so he waited another 11 years you know, to get back into it and was fortunate enough to play in the 05 Premiership. But you're right, it's a and – and even now, and I look back in, at the 2016 grand final that the Bulldogs won, and everyone loved that. But as a Swans person, it's hard to get to a grand final, even harder to win it. That, that was a winnable game for us, we felt, but we didn't nail it. So it all depends on the day. You've been so inextricably linked with the football club for a long time and part of your role was the Melbourne head of the football club, if you like, for how long? 15 years or so? Yeah, so in in between when I moved back from Sydney in early 1991 to 2003, I had uh, news agencies in the uh, Melbourne area in, in Melbourne. And then in 2003... Um, I was approached about getting involved in the Melbourne operation of the Swans, which had been a very much a, a part-time office with some women servicing Swans members. The club wanted to re-engage with their Melbourne-based supporters, South Melbourne, and it's just an appropriate time that, that I was interested in a change if I could sell my business and my linkage, certainly with the past players group and an old South Melbourne business network, was reasonably strong. And so we felt that it was a, an opportunity for the club to um, build build a, a good supporter base and link everyone back with the club. And, and that's how it came about. And to think about in when I came back, we had 4,000 members. We turned over... Uh, $400,000 and made a loss. And now we have close to 13,000 members and we make um, significant profits out of the Victorian operation. So it's been a a really good story. And what it has done is that uh, I was able to re-engage with that group of people who had, had separated from the club. From the players, when I started as a reserves player in 1977, I was playing with players in 77, 78 who started in 67 and 68 and were there, been there 10 years. So I formed friendships and relationships with those people. And then when I was finishing in 1989, 1990 at the Swans, the boys, the Paul Kellys who were just starting, mm. I formed friendships and relationships with. So my, my time overlapped a 25-year period of connection. And I, I have no doubt that that helped just in the, the simple process of a past player who played in 1975, who I knew, and who could contact the club and ask a question, an inquiry or something, and feel like that, that they were acknowledged. And I think that that's been a, a, an important process for the reconnection with the Swans and South Melbourne. And I also think that the, Richard Collis, the chair, he had strong 
belief that we have to be connected at the hip. And since then, it's uh, it's been a successful relationship. One thing that always strikes me, Tony, when I go to Swans games, call Swans games in Melbourne, is the presence, the red and white presence at the game. That must make your heart swell when you see that now. It's absolutely amazing. And at the Bulldogs game two weeks ago, uh, Carlton game two weeks ago at Marvel Stadium, there was nearly 40,000 people there. Now, I have no doubt um, more than a third were certainly Swans people. And what is interesting is that whilst our membership base in, in Victoria is really strong at 13,000, I would get a, a report of each member who'd scanned in at each game. And on average, the maximum me- the amount of members that had scanned in was 3,500. And I know sitting there that there's twelve to 15,000 red and white scarves, all, all branded mm. people. So it's still untapped. Uh, you're not with the Swans. You'll still bleed red and white, of course, but you're not with the Swans. You've just taken up a new job. What's that all about, Tony? What are you doing? <laughs> well, that, yeah. So after, after committing to the Swans in 2003 for a five-year stint, I ended up staying 15 years and having <laughs> um, obviously overseeing Melbourne, but a number of other roles and heading up the Sydney Swans Foundation. My brother-in-law is Anthony Danaher. So Anthony and I met when we were playing at the Swans. Anthony has, and the Danaher boys originally started a, a window cleaning business back in the 80s and, and that's grown to be a national facility management company now. I've just taken on the role of CEO of, CEO of that uh, organisation. Why didn't you get Joe to the Swans? I mean, why is he finished up at Essendon? Well, it wasn't that I didn't have a fair income go, Pete, because... Well, what did you do to try and get him there? Well, I took him to Sydney every month for a year. Did you? Right? <laughs> and uh, and we, yeah, I had him staying at Goodsy's place, Ruzi's <laughs> place, out for dinner, all of those things. And, uh, and Joe, for that particular year... Um, was a 17-year-old, uh, and, and he was going in, you can take the, his selection early. And so he, certainly he was courted by, because Anthony played more than 100 games with the Swans and the Bombers, Joey had the choice. A bit like the uh, Blakey boy who's, who's chose the yeah. Swans and the Scott boy at North Melbourne. So, and whilst, you know, Vidanaher, you know, is... is um, that name and, and synergies with Essendon are quite strong. The Anthony and and his wife Joanne, uh, they have strong we have strong friendships with the Swans through me and, and other people who, who Dennis Carroll and, and Dean Moore and Rick Quaid and you know we're, we're all friends, right? So it's not it's not that they're anti-Swans; they love the Swans. You know, one of the things that has changed in the t- in in my time of being a player was that when I played, I I disliked Carlton, Essendon, Hawthorne only because of utmost respect. I wanted our club to be what they are, to, to expect to make finals every year, to expect to make the grand final. And the change, so by the time we were talking to Joey and Joey was being drafted into the AFL, suddenly... The goalposts had moved. Swans were the team. It was a professional organisation. People respected and said, listen, this is a club that people, it's a destination club. You know, suddenly Essendon changed. It wasn't the destination club. It was in the 80s. And we've seen Carlton as well. Mm. Hawthorne has, has always been pretty good. And and I think that that was uh, the major change. While 
whilst we it wasn't an easy decision for Joey and and I can um understand how how it happened and and whilst with due diligence Kinnear Beatson and Paul Ruse and the club and myself we would do everything we could to make sure that we ticked every box that when if Joey made a decision to go to Essendon we had done everything possible to make sure, to sure that he'd made the right call and that if he was going to come to us, we we're going to make sure that we were ready for him and we made him an attractive offer and there was a lot of benefits. He rang me and, and, and I think that none of us ever thought he would come to the Swans, but, uh, but he rang me, they'd appointed James Hurd and so before they'd appointed James Hurd, I thought, well, maybe we're, you know, a slim chance but they appointed James Hurd, and uh, and so the day the Messiah was appointed, the <laughs> next day apparently he's dropped around to uh, to see Joey, and and I thought, well, we're no hope. But he hadn't committed, and uh, I can remember I was on Kangaroo Island, South Australia, and it was January, and Joey rang me to tell me first that he's decided to go to the Bombers, and uh, and I was really supportive of that, mm. and um, and so um, so the and and I think that. Um, it's been a. I must say that uh, my wife Karen and I have watched more Bombers games since Joe's been playing than uh, that we had in history. Yeah, it would have been some forward line had he gone up north, uh, Buddy on one side of the ground, or maybe Buddy at half forward or full forward, and Joe in the other place in the key position. And you know, what's interesting is, is Joey loves Sydney, and often um, him and his girlfriend will go to Sydney for for a long weekend, mm. and uh, and whenever that happens, I say, can you just please don't. Sh- Put any photos down because people will think that we're courting you again. <laughs> Speaking of loving Sydney and going to Sydney, you had to do that. And we'll explore that when we come back on the other side of the break. The journey from South Melbourne to Sydney. For Tony Morwood, 229 games, 397 goals in the red and white. And we'll be back with more with Tony on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. A fascinating chat with Tony Morwood, the swan star of days gone by. Tone, where did the football journey begin for you? Uh, At Noble Park. Grew up in Noble Park and... Started um, playing as an eight-year-old in the under-11s for, for certainly, no, eight-year-old for the under-13s in the Noble Park YCW. Gee. And then, and certainly was sitting on the bench, wasn't getting a game, Pete, so I don't think I was any good. <laughs> um, but then ended up, of my own accord, went down to Noble Park Junior Football Club as a nine-year-old with, with a mate. And then just started from there. And, and that was, uh, Noble Park was a, a really good breeding ground and it was a good a good suburb um, for sport, for football, and, and that's, where it, that's where it started. My pedigree was really from the dam side. My mother was an outstanding netballer and tennis player, and my dad, my dad I suppose my um, niece and grit from my dad, he, he was a nuggety um, back pocket player, not skilled, but loved sport. Who was the best of the Morwood boys when you were young? growing up who looked as though you were going to be, you know, the best footballer? I think that Paul was certainly skill wise was ahead of 
ahead of anyone. And I remember in the under-15 schoolboy competition, he, he won the best and fairest in that. And certainly he seemed destined to have a, an AFL career. Shane was an interesting story. In the under-15 Noble Park grand final, he didn't make the team. And um, three years later, no, four years later, as a 19-year-old, he debuts for South Melbourne. Mm. So that's, uh, he just developed late in life. But Damien, the next one, Damien was um, very talented, very skillful, um, but not that quick. And then Andrew and Simon after that were uh, both just uh, good sports people without being at AFL level. So how did it come to pass, Tony, that a boy kicking it around in Noble Park finishes up in the red and white at the Swans? Who identified you as being a potential VFL footballer as it was then? Um, I think I was identified by a couple of the recruiters at South Melbourne because then it was a zone. And so one of those, it was, well, Ian Stewart was certainly coach then. I think it might have been 1976. Institute was coach, and one of the committee men was Rod Fitzroy, and Rod, who has been chairman of the VRC, yes, and uh, Rod and I are, are good friends. So it's been a long journey for for Rod and I. Watch, watch my career go. Uh, so that's how it that's how it started, and they invited they invited me down. I did though start my association with South Melbourne in 1971. I played in the South Melbourne Little League and won the Premiership at South Melbourne Little League in 1971. I played a couple of games for the South Melbourne Little League. Um, probably round about that time, you never know. We might have been on the field. Bob at the Petrus same was time. the one who ran that. He's yeah, the old South I remember Melbourne. that name. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, as a 17 year old kid, you debut in the big time. Do you remember your first game? Well, I remember. I remember the actually learning of my first game. Now, so. We train on a Thursday night. I go, I'm not told that I'm in the team at all. I assume that I played in reserve. This is round two, 1978. Round one, I play in the reserves against Essendon at Windy Hill. Don't think I went that well. Friday, leading into round two, I hop onto the train to catch the train from Noble Park into the city. I go in the back carriage, the smoker's carriage. So I'm having a few smokes. I have the Herald Sun. I... Turned to the back page and I said, see South Melbourne in T. Morwood. And I have no idea that that I've got a game. So I'm reading it in the back page of the sun. <laughs> That's and incredible. Then, so no mobile phones, no nothing. I've got no one to talk to, no one to, to tell. And and uh, I get into work and uh, and I think I rang Dad just to, to say, did you see the paper? That's amazing. that You weren't even right. told by anyone at the club. They didn't bother to ring you. Was that the norm those days? Well, that... do you know, they might deny that, but that's my memory of it. Yeah. But I remember I came on on, this, on the second quarter in that game and I played on the wing on Dipper. But Dipper was also young and raw as well. He wasn't getting many games, but he was a lot bigger than me. <laughs> was it at the Lake Oval? Or Lake, was Oval. It... Lake Oval. Yeah. That first year, um, you kicked a few goals, but you really came of age in your second year. I think you were 50-plus goals in your second year. Yeah, I, well, I think I was – I mean, I'm a, I'm a half-foot flanker, really, but there was no – at that stage, they – in 1979, they used me as a, as a quick-leading full forward. So I played full forward – in 1979, and and I know that I had two two standout games. I, I kicked seven against Carlton at the Lake Oval one day, and and then eight against Melbourne at the MCG. 
And what's interesting is that game against Carlton is that we we played so well and and looked like we were going to – and Carlton were – in 1979, I think they won the premiership. They right, did. So a really good team. Don't and remind we, me. <laughs> Wayne Harms. Wayne Harms. And we we were going great all day, but at the end of the day, they got up and beat us by five points after us playing out of our skins. And then I, you know, or went to, when we were in 86, 87, 88 in Sydney, we were the Carlton. You know, we would not play that well, but get up and win those games. And good teams get up and win. And that was uh, that was a transformation of our club. That's fast forwarding a bit over a period that I want to talk to you about. Because whilst you were making your way, there were other things going on at the football club. The the club was on the verge of perhaps extinction if an ambitious move wasn't made. What was your first thought? Do you remember the first time someone said to you, "We are going to have to go to Sydney to survive"? Yeah, I do remember it, and it was a collective meeting of the players with with the um, chairman of the club, Jack Marks, and the general manager of it at the time. And we, whilst we were we were only players, they spelled out the economics of it all and how we were placed, and they also articulated that the VFL and the state government have refused funding to do any works at the Lake Oval which does you know, roadblock anything that you want to do in regard to a master plan, you know, 35 years on, could it have worked? Could it have, you know, could the Marvel Stadium have been at the Lake Oval? Who knows? Um, but I think that given that, the the options were that we're going to close as a club, close down, which in the event, in the, down the road we saw what happened to Fitzroy. And so based on that, a number of, uh, of players are really supportive of this with the with the VFL support then, uh, trying Sydney and being pioneers. And when you were pioneers, what was that transition like? Because you talked to Robert Walls about what happened with Fitzroy when they became the Brisbane Bears and everything was ramshackle. It wasn't a, a football state as we like to call it. What was it like when you went to Sydney? Was there... Did you feel as though you were still pushing the barrow up the hill or was there a lot of support thrown behind the venture? No. I think that what Wolsey talks about with with Brisbane and you're going into a non-AFL state, and certainly we were the first in, in 1982 and The logistic challenges you can't plan for and you have no template to go off. Prior to this, and so I can remember arriving there, and someone gave me a street directory and said, "Where do you want to live?" And so when you look at a street directory and you think we well, see water, that looks good, and you drive around the suburbs, oh, well, it's not as good as we think it could be. Um, so, and re- do you know that, that rents are incredible? Because I can remember I rented out my house in Cheltenham. I can remember sixty-five dollars a week. And I rented a house in Paddington for $180 a week. Ooh. And so you talk about the discussion and debate over many years about cost of living. Well, it is so significant, the difference in re- regard to living in, in Sydney. Albeit, I, I do understand that someone on 300000 plus 
um, may not need an extra 10% to pay the rent. You know, so there's, there's a, there should have been a better formula to, to work through that. So the challenges were that we didn't have a home base to train. You didn't know where you were going to train. And we had no mobile, no mobile phones then. Mm. So sometimes you'd roll up at the SCG on a Tuesday night and they say, well, we're not training here. You've got to drive down to Matraville and train at the Army Barracks ground. Drive down there. It's just after work and you do that. And then so given all of those obstacles, the fact that we were still extremely competitive in the 80s and obviously very competitive after in the Edelson eras, is just a credit to the the um, enthusiasm and the rigour of the playing group. You said there were no mobile phones then. I'll just correct you. There was one mobile phone then, and Doc Edelston had it because he used to bring it to VFL House, as it was then. It was a briefcase. Remember those yes, first mobile yes. phones? And it, it was actually the size of a briefcase, and you had to open up the case, and that was the mobile phone. That was the first mobile phone I ever saw, Doc Edelston's. Well, the Doc, he just loved being the centre of attention, and still does, apparently. Yes. Yes. Did um, you get on well with him? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, he really, in the end, he was only there for, I think, two years before it all went um, pear-shaped. But certainly I got on... I'm well with him. And coincidentally, um, last two months ago, um, I I ran into Leanne Edelston. Yeah, a friend of mine's got a restaurant in King's Cross and, and she was there and came up and said hello. And um, she was remarried and has got a uh, daughter. And um, she um, seems in a good space, Leanne. There's a lot of schools of differing thought about Jeff Edelston's time at the Swans. Do you think the Swans would have the profile that they have now if Jeff Edelston hadn't come along at the time that he did? I don't think so. I think that that combination and with uh, Warwick being there at the time and Warwick loving publicity and being able to, um, and he had, you know, three great years with us, I think that that timing was right. You know, strategically and financial security, there's no doubt that the Basil Sellers, Mike Willisie, Peter Wynett, Craig Kimberley, John Geraghty syndicate was the better one to go with. Was going to pay more, was going to, you know, these are diehard Swans people who were going to be there for the long haul. So in the end, they came in after Edelson went. And so... But I think that just getting that publicity and getting finding getting media space in Sydney, it's still tough, but it was very tough then. And the flamboyancy of Edelson, it did get us on the on the front and back page. You've already mentioned the cost of living tone, and that was clearly one of the drawbacks of living in Sydney. Was there a benefit to living in Sydney out of the VFL bubble as it was then? The anonymity. Did you enjoy the relative anonymity of being up there? I loved it. It was uh, it was the biggest winner for me personally, and because you weren't under the microscope, if you played if you played poorly individually or collectively, you didn't have that that pressure on you uh, in Sydney. And I think that and there's a fine line between between needing that pressure to perform and then feeling it overbearing. And I have no doubt 
that that was that's been the secret of the, of the success of Lance Franklin being in Sydney, because many people would know Lance Franklin, but I would I would argue that five Sydney people could walk past him and say I know that person, but they may not know his name, whereas. You can't do that in Victoria. Mm. Well, most most players can't do it. So I think it's it's a great it's a great tool if it works for you. And it's worked for the Swans, and uh, and certainly worked for me. I love the fact of being in Sydney and 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 the lifestyle. And not that I I felt any pressure in Melbourne to be honest, but I really enjoyed that anonymity. More with Tony on the other side of the break. This is your sporting life with Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What a pleasure it is to have Tony Morwood as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tone before the break I mentioned, 229 games. 397 goals. It came to an end South Melbourne-wise in 1989. A lot of players are just football. That's all that it ever is, is football. But you weren't that sort of animal, were you? No, I wasn't. I was I was very much into where's my life going to go after football. And in, during my career, I was determined to have some type of business career. And so in 1986, the age of 26, I started up a personalised fitness centre in, in Sydney and because then football was part-time, not full-time. So with the fitness fitness coach at the time, him and I started up this, this business and so ran that for five years before moving back to Melbourne in early 1991. And then then I bought the local news agency, then bought the next, the next one and then sort of went from there and, uh, and then started my my life in having my, my own business and, and being being involved. And and then in the last 15 years, I've, I've gone on to obviously the, the swans, but, you know, I've, I've found education later on in life and, and I've been able to continue to, to do study through an MBA. I've been lucky enough to go to Harvard Business School twice for programs and uh, I'm a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. I, I'm a chairman of an incorporated board from school. And so I've just, you know, that's sort of my, my stimulants now. Whilst I love my footy, mm. you know, that's sort of been the uh, the driver going forward. Now, I mentioned 89 was the end of the career in the red and white, but it wasn't the end of your footy career. It, well, it was about it, to take another turn, wasn't it? It was. I thought it was the end of my football career. And uh, after finishing, I you know, had no desire to... To play football again, I wanted to really get into my business business life. But great friend and an ex Swans captain, Mark Browning, was captain coach of a Hobart football club, in Tasmania. And one thing led to another, and I ended up um, becoming a member of his team. And so, living in Sydney, I became one of those fly-in players. I would fly down on a Friday night, back on a Sunday morning, and and we ended up. Um, making the grand final and winning a premiership in, in 1990. But it didn't, it didn't unfold without some anxious moments because my third child, Polly, was due to be born in September in the week of the grand final. And I'd always said the whole way through that 
if Karen goes into hospital, I'm not coming down. I'm not flying down. And so I can remember the Hobart Mercury paper saying Morewood, unsure about playing. But true to form, my three children have all been born on Wednesdays. And so uh, Polly was born on the Wednesday. It left me clear to play in the big one. Would that have been a really difficult choice or would it have been an easy choice to make not to play if things had worked out differently? Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think that my natural choice would have been to not play, albeit Karen might have encouraged me to play. I'm not sure how, how it would have, would have been. Um, but I don't think because I'd been up front with, the, with Hobart all the way th- through, I said, this is the predicament. If it doesn't happen, I, I can't help it. I mm. need to be in Sydney for, for this. There are two matches that I want to talk to you about. One's a grand final, so you know which one I'm going to talk about. The other one is 1996. Were you there that night when Plugger kicked that famous point? Absolutely. I what, was there. What was your emotion like that night? Because I, I don't think it mattered who you barracked for, apart from Essendon, that everybody was so euphoric about what happened that night. Do you know what? I compare it to the Bulldogs beating us in 2016. Mm. If, you were, if you weren't a Swans person, yeah. everyone was on the bandwagon, thought this is good for football. And I think that... I was there, and this the the utter um, shock that that my club, our club, had made a grand final in my lifetime. It was just amazing, and the sacrifices that we had made to relocate to Sydney all all seemed worth it. It was worth the battle, and it was worth that. You know, maybe this club is going to forge a legacy that will go on for another century. Ultimately, you'd walk away without the cup a week later, but then nine years later came that famous day. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember I remember two things. I mean, well, I remember a number of things, but I can remember um, Grubby Stubbs, you know, Grubby Stubbs Radio, Grubby and yeah. Dee. So Peter and I are good mates. So we're... Peter and our wives were in the car. We're driving in the MCG, and I've got a ticket under the under the stadium to park the car. So we're driving in, and we get stopped by security, and and I leave my tickets in the back in the boot of the car, and so I get stopped to get out, and the Prime Minister John Howard's car and security behind us, and I get out and throw my boot up, and suddenly all the security guards jump, right, and thinking something's going on here. We get through this stage. I park my car, and and I still can't believe it. I park my car, and, and two door, two car spots up is Darren Goldspink, the umpire, mm. and I don't know whether it's a relative or not. But the girl that's in his car hops out, and she's got a painted red and white face, right? And Grubby says, "Maybe this is our day," right? <laughs> <laughs> and that we went on. But certainly, I think that um, you know. One of the, uh, I think it was a really stressful day because it was so close mm. and you had no idea. Uh, all I'm thinking is when the siren went, it was relief because if we didn't win, when we were going to get there again, when are we going to finally win one? Because the last one was 1933. Albeit, we should have won the year after. 
yeah. lose by a point. Against so the same opposition. Same opposition, which seemed to have some help, right, as time has shown. And so, uh, but no, it was just uh, just one of, one, of, one of the best days ever. And that mark in the last 10 seconds, oh. how good was that? Yeah, absolutely. And given that the, that's the greatest thing about Rusey's coach, he empowered the players. Whilst you have discipline in regard to punching from behind, he also in, in empowered them to make decisions. If you think you can mark it, mark it, whether you're a, a, a backman or, or whatever. And clearly, it, well, Rusey as a player, well, he never punches a defender. So it's really a, a reflection of his, his career. No, it was just, uh, just amazing. With your relationship with the club and the Melbourne side of the club, how many people said to you after that game, I can die happy now? There would have been a few, wouldn't there? Oh, there would be hundreds, if not thousands, that have said that. And that was been the, it's been the catalyst, really, for us to set up the Sydney Swans Foundation because after that time, I had so many people wanting to donate funds, memorabilia to the club for our our legacy going forward that we established this foundation to be an entity that was separate from the operation of the club and it looked at the future, the future proving the club in regard to giving money back for projects, capital works and our academy programs. And it's, you know, the legacy now 10 years, well, longer than that, but um, 13, 14 years on is that uh, we're really well placed for the future. We're just about out of time, Tone, but we'll take our final break. And when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk to you about something that is not necessarily as happy a time at the Swans, something that's evolved over the last few years that you have um, plenty of thoughts on, and that's the Adam Good situation. And we'll talk with Tony Maud about that when we come back with our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What an enjoyable chat it's been with Tony Morwood on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tony, I mentioned... Adam Goods and the whole situation surrounding him. What's your take on what transpired? Well, incredible sadness, really. That's the that's the one word that comes. It's just so sad that Adam had to be forced to finish his career at a mo- and and it came because of basically racism and people identifying that. Adam had no right to have a voice when it stemmed from him being anointed Australian of the Year. Which he didn't ask to be. Which he didn't ask to be. It's an independent body that makes that appointment. And the reason he was anointed was because of his um, standing in the community, what he's done for our club, what he's done for education in the Indigenous space and what he's just done for society as a role model. He was penalised for that because for 
clearly thousands of people felt that um, he was trying to lead the way in regard to vilification. The moment that he identified a, a, a young girl calling him an ape, he was strong enough to actually make that statement. And not once did he blame the girl. He blamed society and how we have to change and how we have to appreciate and understand that people are different. From that moment, from him being appointed Australian every year, the booing of anything that any time that he was on the football ground uh, was just been a really sad thing to watch for, for me, for knowing Adam for many, many years. He's a friend and he's a really caring, incredible person. It's just been, that is the, I think it's the worst thing I've experienced in, in my whole relationship with AFL football. Do you think that that undid a lot of the work that the likes of Michael Long and that famous gesture from Nicky Winmar did over the years? I think it brought it to a head and I think it, it highlights how much how much the governing body and clubs need to be the leaders in what is considered right and wrong. And you can make your own call, but, you know, when, when we're looking at society and what's acceptable, we've looked at marriage, equali- marriage equality and just people equality. Um, I think that society is, is coming a long way and I think we have to continue to, you know, cult, when we talk about culture, culture is about standards and what behaviours and values, but standards is the, is the key thing. And we've got to keep lifting the bar, but the standards, this is what is acceptable, it's not acceptable. And we have to be brave enough to call it out when it's not acceptable. So I think that that's been the only good thing that's come out of this, is that some parties and organisations and bodies and individuals are strong enough now to say it's not right. Just finally, as we end our chat, the one thing that you haven't been able to do over the years as football supporters is write the swans off at any stage because they always find a way of proving you wrong. But this season looks as though it's going to be a bit of a battle. Is is the time finally there when the team might just bottom out a little bit and then build for the next era? Do you know, right at this moment, it does appear that way. But if you'd asked me before the season, I was quite bullish and I'm, and I'm really bullish um, about us. I'm more conservative. The fact is that four of our players missed the whole year last year, which was Reed, Mullican, Naismith and Mills. And with those four players coming back in, they're like new recruits. What's happened was that Naismith's hurt his knee again. Reed's going along nicely, but he's missed a year. Mullican has missed a year and has struggled. And Mills has taken a while to get going, but he's okay. It's been a fascinating chat. Um, I still have vivid memories of the number 21 with the mustaka and the mullet dominating in the red and white. Even a few of us in the media had moustaches <laughs> and mullets in those days. But it was a great career and it's been great to get your thoughts on a range of things. And we wish you the best in your new endeavours. And um, I'll be forever grateful of that great gesture of 11 years ago. Tony, thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. 
Tony Morwood joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back same time next week. Hope you can join us then. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.